Today's guest discovered that over a 10-year period, just 1 in 12 companies managed to jump from the middle tier of corporate performance where 60% of companies reside, making very little economic profit, to the top quintile where 90% of global economic profit is made. This movement does not happen by magic. It depends on your company's current position, the trends it faces, and the big moves you make to give it the strongest chance of vaulting over the competition. This is not another strategy framework. Rather, today's book shows through empirical analysis and the experiences of dozens of companies that have successfully made multiple big moves that to dramatically improve performance, you have to overcome incrementalism and corporate inertia. It is a great pleasure to welcome the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute and the author of Granularity of Growth and today's focus, Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick, Sven Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking forward to talk. Sven, I have a copy up for grabs. I actually have two copies. One is on the shelf behind me there. I want to also tell our audience that Sven is also co-author and co-creator of the Three Horizons model that many, many of you use. I use it myself. And that is a book we really do want to cover in the future. Sven, I thought we'd start by offering some context, a kind of a mental map for the book. Because straight up in the book, you don't jump into strategies or frameworks or anything like that. You talk about the social side of strategy, which is really a huge blocker to change within organizations. I'd love you to share what you mean by the social side. The um, social side is basically the dynamics around decision-making among people that make decisions about strategy. Typically, a company will run a strategy process. Uh, They call it sometimes annual planning or they come something else. And in that, you know, people just go into a room and we take this room as sort of the place where this social meeting happens. And people present a plan and then somewhere approval needs to occur. But in that process, many things go on in people's mind. Their ego, their future, the risk they're taking towards their future. Will my job next year perform? Um is it fair that I don't get money and he does get money or she does get money? And there's, there's lots of these things are going on. A lot of things has to do with risk uh, and so on. And as a result, people do all kinds of funny things. But in general, that's why we called it the strategy beyond the hockey stick. The social behavior has sort of coalesced to that somebody needs to promise a bright future. And then, of course, they somewhere want to have a yes at the end to get the investments for that bright future, which is the hockey stick. Um, and it's not a ice hockey stick. It's a field hockey stick because everybody asks for a dip next year, which reduces the risk to then play for the, this bright future. But nobody that comes in with, oh, I don't know whether the future is going to be bright, but I still need to do something. Uh, will get the money. And so that's just one aspect, but there's lots of, lots of things going on in the social space. Yeah. And you talk about all the biases, loss aversion. You mentioned Daniel Kahneman, lots and lots of stuff in there. And Sven is under limited time today. So. I'm going to have to gloss over that. And if you're the lucky winner of the book, you'll get to read it. But also, I highly recommend reading the book. You'll be nodding along like one of those dogs on the back of a car. (laughs) So Sven, I thought we'd explain the depth of research with this book, because one of the things that many of the books that are about innovation often give a, a, a helicopter view, but you really, really dug into what you call 10 levers 
that explain over 80% of updrift and downdrift in corporate performance. These are really, really important. And they also tie into the idea of your work, which is the outside view versus the big challenge to change and innovation, which is the inside view. Maybe we'll share a bit of the, the depth of the research and what you did with this book. Yeah. So the general uh, case for strategy books is you do 10 cases, then you look at what these 10 cases did, and then, you know, that sort of tells you what was good or bad. Um, what we did is we had 2,400 publicly quoted companies, and we did a longer database also, and we looked at 30 variables and let the analytics, it wasn't chat GPT, but let the analytics uh, figure out, you know, which drivers at what threshold make a difference to what we call the odds of strategy. One point that is deep in this research is that there is no such thing as a certain thing in strategy. What we find is if you split companies in five quintiles of performance to over a decade jump from the middle to the top, on average has only an 8% chance. Only an 8% chance. Uh, if you are at the top quintile, it's 55% chance that you stay at the top. If you're at the bottom quintile, it's 45 chance that you stay at the bottom. I've not ever seen a plan or somebody at the top saying next decade will be down. I've also never seen a plan that says that's at the bottom that says next decade, we will not be up because that's just not the social side. So the data are incongruent. This, the outside view is incongruent with the inside view. So then we asked ourselves, okay, tell us, dear data, what gets the 8% to a higher level? So if you're a big company, it's easier to move up on the probability because a small change has high leverage. So big companies are better. Interesting, low leverage was another one that came out as good because if you have low leverage, you have flexibility to spend. What was very interesting is in the previous decade, if you outspent competition on R&D, you had a 20% higher chance to go to the top. Now, trends, whether it's industry trends or geography trends, they can be good or bad. If you're very good in trends, it can lift you. So, again, but it changes the odds. There's no silver bullet that gets you from the 8% to 100. It gets you from 8 to 14, then something else gets you to next. And on the moves, this was M&A, resource allocation, CapEx acceleration, if you're in a super high growth place, and it was productivity improvement and differentiation improvement. So these are these 10 levers, but we have thresholds. And this, if you basically have a good environment and a good start, you maybe need to pull two levers. If you have a bad environment and a bad start, you have to pull all levers to even get to 50% chance to make it from the middle to the top. So this odds of strategy at the lever level suggests that you have to make relatively big moves to get you out of your predicament. And the strange thing is this inside view will say big moves are risky. But it turns out in the data, that's not true. You not making a big move is more risky than you making one. Why? Because if you don't make one, somebody else will. And that's, that's just been fascinating in this game. So the inside view is incongruent with the outside view. The inside view never talks about probabilities. And the inside view is against big moves. Well, that's what the data suggests you should do. I love the way the book highlights the people who made those bold bets, the big moves, and made it not knowing that it would work out. You mentioned, for example, Skip said as, as an example of that, but let, let's give an example of those who didn't, because you do go right back to the classic cases, but you frame them 
in the context of your book. For example, this idea of the outside view versus the inside view was Kodak. I'd love you to share this as an example of someone who didn't listen to the outsiders. That's a well-described example of um, the, the disconnect between the outside change of technology versus the inside change of technology and the odds that the outsider with their moves would win and make a bigger move than the inside view. And I think that is just very common because you're basically sitting there and say, oh, I'm doing a lot. But outside, something else happens at a very different pace with a very different model. And you can get, you know, you can get clogged up in that inside view and, and, and be myopic for it. Uh, that doesn't mean that these people haven't tried stuff. But the sum, in particular, in these innovation areas and the big disruptions, you will have lots of stuff happening outside that if you miss it, you know, you'll miss the boat. I'm going to share now, with Sven's permission, a few of the great graphs. And the book is beautifully illustrated with cartoons as well, very humorous cartoons. You've seen me share some of those on LinkedIn for those who follow the innovation show. But here I'm going to show some of the key graphs in the book. One of those is your chosen unit of measurement. And this is a difficult thing, Sven, that you highlight in the book as well, is that many, many organizations struggle what measurement to use. And you use economic profit. So let me share that on the screen. And I'd love you to take our audience through that. So we use a measure which is called economic profit. Economic profit is the profit that you make after you pay your shareholders and your debt holders your cost of capital. So it's the excess profit above a standard level of cost of capital. And what you see on this chart is basically the distribution of that economic profit of nearly 2400 companies in five quintiles, but also with the line that you see. That line starts close to minus 10 billion and it ends at close to 10 billion. A few companies are not on here because they live at esoteric levels. They would be two floors up. But what is interesting about this is how steep this curve is at the bookends. Uh, this is not a normal distribution. This is a power law. In the middle, it's pretty flat with something from minus 166 to 296. So there's a 500 million euro economic profit spread. But then you can go all the way up to 10 billion on the right and all the way down almost to 10 billion on the left. And so this distribution is a real question in terms of um, what is. And economic profit has the beauty versus share price that economic profit you can plan for. You can plan your capital, you can plan your returns. Uh, and we do know it's highly correlated to share price. So those who think that that's the objective will see that this will work for that too. Another key unit of measurement or a way of actually framing the entire book was the power curve. And what I loved about this was like, you're like, look, your main competitor is not your competitor. It's not the next door neighbor. It's not the person in your industry. It's a Darwinian force of the market that squeezes your profitability. And I thought that was a really good way to frame it combined with this next slide. This is the power curve for industry. So this says how much of that variance that we just saw by company is in a way explained by the industry you're in. So at this moment in time, and the industries do change in profitability. Uh, you know, software technology was very high. Uh, and on the left, you see there were issues in electric utilities and construction materials at the time. Uh, not all industries move very fast, but some move around. And if you are moving with the industry, that's, of course, one big help. But it's just much harder to be very profitable if you're on the left of this curve than if you're on the right of this curve. And the Darwinian forces in each industry, as you described, Aiden, they're very different. I thought that was so interesting because later in the book, you talk about, well, 
the if you're if you're in an industry that's on a decline you're in trouble you're you're just going to be as you say it it's like when you were a kid playing on an escalator trying to run against the escalator it's the same thing you're you're actually expending a lot of effort and then you also say well that helps you choose a job for the future as well choose a job that's on the curve at the start of the curve not one that's at the very top struggling as well so just to throw that into the mix as well but sven there was a really important next slide and i love this because again many many of us have been through this you've been through this as a consultant as well with your clients many many of us have experienced this as consultants but also execs in the exec suite this whole idea of the social aspect again where i promise a hockey stick i'm going next year might be tight but you know looking out five years maybe i'll be gone by then <laughs> it's gonna take off i i guarantee you and this tees us up nicely for a slide I absolutely loved, an image from the book, which is the hairy back. <laughs> and lots and lots of people have seen the hairy backs, but only in retrospect. And many, many leaders or C-suite executives have left in between these hairy back hairs. This slide I have a collection of. I have cyclical companies that say we're going to get out of the pocket, declining companies, we're going to return, high growth, that we're going to go faster. But the pattern is often that sort of the actual is not on the line, which tells you that what's going on in the planning process has nothing to do with the actual performance. That's how far the disconnect can be between the inside view, the social side of strategy. Because if you don't promise a good plan, then people will... And since everybody's playing this game of promising a good plan and you don't promise, you don't get resources. And let's just be clear. When you look at a presentation, which I always like, is you know, the presentation... Uh, that happen in the room, how are the dynamics? On the last page of the presentation, people ask for resources and people. And there they want to get a yes. So their entire presentation dynamic is to get to that yes. We call that the getting to the yes process. It includes the hockey stick because you won't get a yes if you don't promise a bright future. But as a result, the process doesn't allow for good discussion. Because a presenter will try to prevent any discussion on the thing to get to the yes page. And they will feel that any discussion will distract from their chances to get to a yes, which means that you don't have a open dialogue, a frank dialogue, a challenging dialogue. Because, And then, of course, as a leader, you try to challenge. But the intent of the presenter is to get the resources, not to have the learning dialogue that you might want to have if you actually want to change where you're going. And as a result, we end up with hockey sticks and hairy backs. It's great. And I love the language. And it, it's it's one of those books where it's like the whole idea of the court jester. Stuff is said in jest, but it's extremely serious. And you're trying to change the mind of the king, which is beautifully done in the book. And it's even the typeface, the font, beautifully done. The, the next line I thought was a, an important one to share. You say, the belief in incremental progress is a fallacy. Bigger moves not only increase your odds of success, but reduce the risk of sliding back down again. Still, the fear of downside risk pervades the planning environment, and what you tell us here is striking. Nearly 8 out of 10 executives surveyed by your firm tell us that their companies are more geared towards confirming existing hypotheses in their strategy processes than testing new ones. Going for incremental moves is the norm very rarely the exception. Maybe you'll elaborate on this because you've seen this even more so since you wrote the book. Yeah, so there's a um, metric that you can use to it uh, that says the average 
strategic plan moves 2% of CapEx from one destination to the other, let's say from bad to good. The data that we did then, and uh, they have been reconfirmed, is that you're much better if you do like six per annum. Because you know, if you reallocate 2% per annum after five years, you have a 10% new company. If you do six, you have a 30% new company. And if it was good, it might have even been 50 already. So there is this inertia thing that is going on. We asked people, and you know, one of the other interesting words is, you know, when people do a planning process, they sandbag, uh, which is basically putting cushion in so that you have comfort that you will make your plan next year. So we asked people, how comfortable do you want to be that you make your plan next year? 95%. So that means failure once in 20 years. We think it's much better to have 10 stretch plans with 80% chance of success than 10 comfortable plans with 95% of success. And you're better off having two plans fail at a stretch goal, but eight succeed, i.e. the 80% odds, than this 95% odds of incrementalism. But the incrementalism creeps in because people are geared towards making sure that next year works out. One of the other learnings that I have is even though bonuses and so on are everywhere and so on, I would say in many, many companies and in many, many roles, job security is more important than bonus. And that means that you want to make your plan because the greatest way to sort of be challenged in your job is not to deliver what you promised. So that means that you just get this low-balling effect of the, you have this high promise to get the resources, but you have low-balling in the short term. And that's the hockey stick. It's terrible, isn't it? I, I, I was thinking about that. And one of the things you said was, it's like, a police chief sends out four teams to investigate. You know, there's been robbers that robbed the bank. They're either in one of these four locations. You send out all four, but then you only celebrate the people who catch the bad guys. And therein is a problem that leadership can fix quite easily by going, look, we're going to reinvest capital in several areas. Probably only one, probability tells us one is only going to succeed, but that one is going to cover all the other investment. And then I only celebrate the people who succeeded. Therein lies a massive challenge for organizations. Well, I think you need to start to get away from this, um, this sandbagging stuff. So you have to start to say this stretch plan approach, but that means also that you shouldn't judge people only on their numbers. So let me give you a thought experiment on this. If 10 units come in six months into the performance year and two are deep, deep green in their performance. Six are okay and two are deep red. Which one gets the attention? The deep reds. It's you think the deep reds don't know they're red? They know. So the deep reds either need help or they need to be changed because they are not capable. That's possible. But who is smiling in the room? It's the two greens because their numbers look good. What could have happened with the two greens? I always get a, a bit of angry management when I do this. The two greens get angry at me. Same, I here, say, same here, man. <laughs> the two greens uh, could have been sandbagging. Uh, and then there's more to mine. The two greens could have thought of a new pot of gold that turned out to be much bigger by surprise. Then there's more to mine. They could have not thought about a sandbag nor a pot of gold, but there was one. Then there's more to mine. The failure to ask the ones that are performing to do more, I think, is one of the biggest planning errors that people make. Um, and the social side drives it because you say that, you know, I delivered what I promised. And the other guy says, oh, man, I'm just... And so then the whole focus goes on the red. And that's... I'm not saying it's a waste of management time, but 
it is really wasted management time to not accelerate where you're strong. Oh man, you 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 dug up a past for me, man. I, I worked in digital at that change in 2008, 2009 in media. And I was in those boardrooms. I was the one kind of going, I, I think, and I genuinely was probably naive in this. I was like, going, I think it will work out something like this. And I could never, I could never understand in my naivety how other guys could promise a budget monthly and then hit that magically monthly every month. And I was like, I was sitting there kind of going, well, it doesn't work that way in digital. Some days it's up, some days it's down. I, I don't know yet because we're only figuring this out. And you're right. I got punished on a consistent basis versus them and they were smiling and then i found out the true meaning of sandbagging and it was torture so when i was reading this i was like kind of going, okay i wasn't the only one <laughs> so thank you thank you yep. for that yep. i i thought we'd measure uh, we'd look to measurement and another slide that was really important was the the intersection between roic so roic and then also the growth because one of the challenges is say in the book is that I get to the top of an S curve, I get to the top of growth, I become a successful organization, using a certain mindset, certain skill sets. And then I need to jump to a new curve. And that that needs different, different skill sets, different capabilities, and different mindsets. And therein is a problem. But measurement is always a problem as well. And maybe you'll take us through this slide as well that that was so useful, I thought. The reality is, when you look at uh, the odds of moving up to the top quintile from this middle to the top, which we said on average are eight, the ones that slide down more, uh, you know, are underperforming on both growth and ROIC. Uh, actually, uh, outperform on ROIC, uh, but underperform of growth is starting to hit the average. To actually be in the top, you need to do outperform on both. This idea that you can be top quintile without growth is actually not true. Uh, it's actually, in particular, to go from the middle to the top. Once you're at the top, it's possible to stay there with high ROIC and low growth. It's actually not possible to stay there with declining ROIC. So at the end of the day, this whole fallacy of trade-off between growth and profitability doesn't exist. I will make one nuance to that. In the short run, the model actually does suggest that you can take a company down to actually have a real hockey stick, not the ice hockey stick, and then outperform. It turns out that the average company that goes from the middle to the top actually does take a dip. So the reality is a hockey stick. And what happens in the planning process is the people ask for the field hockey stick, and then the budgeting process that does the annual plan says, yeah, but you can't dip next year which means it cuts out the investments and then the real hockey stick doesn't happen. And, but over the longer period of time, you have to solve for both growth and growth. And uh, just a couple of examples that you share in the book. So we've seen this where companies like you say, Netflix, right at that sweet spot when Netflix moved from stream from video or DVD to streaming, there was an 80% drop in the share price. Cisco was the same when they moved to the cloud. Every organization, they have to take a step back to take a step forward. Maybe you'll, you'll give some advice here, particularly, Sven, for the change maker. So the innovator in an organization trying to convince the organization to make this move. Actually, the nervousness is also a lot with the market. And then, of course, it's internal. Because internal, it feels like risk. But with the market, it feels like risk, too. Because if you are on a treadmill like this, then you just keep doing the treadmill. 
And so to communicate to the market, you're doing something different. There are two or three mechanisms that help. One is we started an investment vehicle here that we, we will tell you what we're doing. This thing is still the treadmill, but we're doing this. So you make it transparent and then you don't make this super big from the day, but you start to learn and you start to tell people what you're doing. And that helps the internal loop too. And then once people see, okay, this, these two things worked, uh, now they want more of it. Yeah. And so you have to bring them along and that will also navigate your shareholder base a little bit. And then you can start to change other parameters like your dividend policy and so on. And internally, it's the same. You, you got to, and by the way, the right way to invest is to learn first and then to scale. It's not the other way around. So if you make that both internally and externally transparent, you can take people along the road. But you need to then also be aware that when you look at investment projects, uh, we find like whether it's private equity returns or something or M&A or organic R&D projects, three out of tw 20 turn out to be spectacular, 14, okay, three, not so good. And you risk manage the not so good, you scale the very good, and that's your portfolio. The picking winners is not a, something that we have found to be actually the way the world works. If you take venture capital, it's 2 to 4% of venture capital works. Now, that's early stage. But the same thing is true for m and deals in this 3, 16, 3 uh, uh, sort of division. Um, and so you need to familiarize people with that if you start to do something new, that you have to also accept the failures. And the failure rate will be higher because you're experimenting. Isn't that the key part? Because you, you talk about what happens as a result of this, trying to get my budget, and then the organization goes, oh, we'll put 2% of CapEx into the future. And then there's a what you call a peanut butter spreading of the budget across loads and loads of initiatives, but none deep enough to actually make a difference. And it's not that. I, I want to point out that that's not what you're talking about here. You're talking about you're going to back big time a few different initiatives. And you talk about the best companies putting 50% of CapEx into the future, not two, not six, but 50. You see it on the IT budget too, 80% goes to new digital or AI now. And 20 does to legacy. If it's the other way around 2080, then you know you're not in the future. Absolutely. You actually can look at it. It is strange. Some, some people say, you know, but it's when you guys in the book only talk about the numbers and how big it should be. I said, I understand the entrepreneurial idea is very important still. And of course, you don't write the entrepreneurial ideas in this book. Uh, but the reality is, if you don't back the entrepreneurial idea with enough capital, it can be very good. It still won't happen. It's such a key part that and, and to bring this to life you share a tale of three companies and i'll just explain what these companies are for audience and then i'm going to show a graph that really brings this to life this shows the different fates of a company called pcc which is a u.s-based maker of precision aircraft components unfi which is an american distributor of natural organic and specialty foods foods and related products and then dnp which is a leading Japanese newspaper publisher, or was maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's still going today. But the next slide shows the faith of these three companies and what happened. And I'd love you to unfold this for us. So what we did here is we basically looked at three companies that ended up very differently. They're very different sectors. So they, they're not competing, they're not, and so on. But what we sh showed is that when we apply the model with the 10 levers to these three companies, and we measured against what they did over the decade, we can predict where they came out. So the higher one ended up with 85% chance to be in the higher one, the lower one with 85% there, and the other one 78 to stay in the middle. 
Um, and the reality is when we look at the 2,400 companies, the hindcast of our model gets about 95 to 98% of the companies into the right bucket because we you basically use the levers to change the odds where they go and then you put them in that place. And basically what you see is the one that moved up the most actually did all moves and not one at high intensity. One that stayed in the middle did one move at low intensity and the one that stayed on the left actually did very few moves at high intensity and had a bad environment. But you basically, we found that the model was actually predictable of where you could, now you can't predict the trends of the future with a hindcast, so you need to still think about the future and so on. But it does become informative to make predictions of the odds of you in the next decade making good progress. Next up then, to build on that, you say a plan that has a realistic chance of producing a real hockey stick that will carry a company from the middle to the top of the power curve should have an element of magic to it. Something you say jokingly in the book, it should be able to be smelled through the video conferencing tools. And you say if you want to have some confidence that a hockey stick plan is real, you can share how to decipher that, how how to tell the difference between a fake one and a real one. I'd love you to share this. This will be of extreme interest to our audience. Yeah, so the of course, you can't smell through a video conference, but that's how, how high the bar is. Um, but the reality is, if, if like long list of like 15 things that bring us to success, at the root of anything good, is a fairly central idea. And if you can't feel that idea, you can't visualize it, you can't, I, I just don't think. Now, the visual idea could be, we're going to work every lever harder than anybody else, but we're doing it because we are able to do this. And if that this is not substantiated, you can't smell it through the video conference. I still don't believe it. Because you can say uh, we will work harder, but how do I know you will work harder than the other? You have to tell me why. And the, and you get to the why, 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 why. And if after the last why you can't smell it, then it's not going to be there. Uh, the second point is you then go measure. It's great that we have this great idea. Are we putting the money? Let me give you an example. So many, many at the time, you know, companies were deciding, should we go to Africa? It's still a question and it's a new question again. And it comes back every time. And so let's say you're a 10 billion company. And then I would ask, great, you're going to Africa. It's a big territory, probably good for you and so on. But how many millions and people are you investing? And they say, uh, two million. Okay, that's reconnaissance. You're not going to conquer a bridge for two million. You're not even going to conquer a market for a company. Because you're not. So the size of the move, which is what this book shows, does matter. If somebody says, okay, you're a 10 billion company, you put 500 million to Africa, I know you will have a beachhead or a big one. And from that, I can trust that you can then generate. And so but with two million, you're just doing reconnaissance. So the idea has to be so powerful that you can smell, but the commitment has to be so big that you can actually feel it. And here's a very important point. There's always this discussion between that's ah, all about execution. It's all about strategy. In the book, Granularity of Growth, we proved that 80% of the variance in performance is M&A and where you compete. 80% is where M&A and where you compete. However, I do believe you can fail by not executing. Uh, and so the handover, in my view, between strategy and execution, what this book also says is resource allocation. So the strategy process says, I send you with 500 million to Africa. Then if you then don't make it, that's for those that execute. But if I send you with 2 million and I expect you to bring me a billion, then, then the strategy process was wrong. Yeah. So the idea has to be good. This time it might be something in Africa. 
but the money has to be consistent to the ambition, uh, then it's a good idea. But if you can't smell it and it's reconnaissance, it's not going to move the hockey stick. It's so frustrating, Sven, for, for the people in the organization who know that. So say the corporate innovator who's trying to get that funds kind of going, I need more money, I need more budget, and the organization says no. But it's not no because oftentimes they don't have it. It's no because we want to invest that in, in efficiency innovation or some IT project. And you're kind of going, that's business as usual. This is the future. And that causes massive challenges for so many organizations. I, I think that frustration is rife within organizations. There are people who know, but they can't get the organization to change. And I think I'd love your, your thoughts on this. This is why leadership really needs to be on board. So since you're talking about serious money that needs to be reallocated, is leadership on board. But we are also doing quite some things uh, that just make it harder. So in the strategic planning process, what happens is you discuss until August, let's say, in the most rhythms, then sort of somewhere you approve the thing, and then you start your budgeting annual planning process in October, and then you suggest that 500 million will be deployed in January. Never. So the real question is, and, and there's also real pain, because if I move resources from one place to the other, and I do it without having improved the place where I take it, there's a big loss there. And in the short term, that loss is bigger than the gain of the investment. And that means that you have two kinds of companies, companies that look similar earnings, let's say 10% return on sales, but one is operating at 15% and can move freely 5% of resources around every year. And one that operates at 10% and delivers 10 and is always with the neck on the line. If your resources are not liquid before you do strategy, the strategy will never come because you can't get it done in the budgeting. And so part of what these innovators need to do is to say, have you actually really freed up the money to be able to do this? Uh, and then, of course, there's a whole convincing game. I thought about that, Sven, from even... If you're going to join an organization as an innovator, they're the type of questions you should be asking in the interview. <laughs> How do we survive success? Say, for example, we prove this is the future. What are we going to do then? And most C-suites won't have an answer for that because they don't even expect to get that far. They like the ideation aspect, but when it comes to incubation and scaling, oftentimes the plans kind of just fall apart. Yeah, I will say that the one, th one thing that we have experienced recently I would say when we wrote the book, uh, we would have said the incumbent will never be the builder of businesses. There is more business building in companies going on now that are the incumbent than ever. So this has become a little bit of a method. And people basically have realized, they always have wanted it. But then they said, you know, it's not us. It needs to be the innovators. But I think at some point, people realize if you don't do it yourself, you know, your lunch gets eaten. And so methods have been developed uh, that are getting better, I would say, on doing your own innovation. That's welcome, welcome news and more welcome news for you. And again, this is in the book, is Sven and his team looked at thousands of companies, many, many executives, many different uh, initiatives, and found 40 variables, which they whittled down to 10 variables that will help you triangulate which industries which elements which geographies are about to take off and maybe i'll tee you up to take us through the 10 variables at a high level you say here they are all measured relative to other companies in the sample it's not how smart you are 
but how much smarter you are than the other kids taking the test that counts. If they all did their homework, you need to have done that and more. And then there's a second part you say here, to get a boost, you have to cross an upper threshold. And you show in the book where these thresholds are. It's binary, much like the power curve itself. Getting one better doesn't seem to do much. You need to put yourself in a totally different league. And the same goes for the downside. Having a bad score can drag you right down, but only if you go below a lower threshold. There are important aspects of the book that won't come across in depth now. But maybe we'll start off with the first part, which in encompasses three of the variables which is endowment measures so the endowment measures is your starting point basically how your company starts at the beginning of a period uh, part of that is you start with a size and since we measure economic profit in an absolute way you know a bigger size with a small margin change can move you around on the thing so bigger companies can have at the highest threshold a 20 percent chance to go from the middle to the top the uh then the second one is debt leverage. So if you borrowed a lot, uh, that doesn't help because you don't have the freedom to spend. That's a few points additional. Uh, but the other one is whether you spend on innovation. R&D is a proxy. And um, if you outspend your competitor to the point of being relative, it's not that difficult to measure, just more than the average. <laughs> that already lifts the 8 to 20% in probability. So you could have a sum total endowment that is either close to zero, i.e. you're even less likely to stay in the middle than the average, or one that gets you close to 40, 50, just by having a better starting point. Most strategy discussions don't even discuss it. Yeah, but it makes a big difference, zero or 50. <laughs> uh, it's five, 500 million if you take the expected value of it. As part of the show, I often I wear a pin every week that kind of reflects each of the episodes. And today I chose this symbol of the Ouroboros, the snake that eats its own tail. And I thought of it as a symbol for the idea that the organization needs to almost consume what it used to be in order to fuel what it's going to become in the future. And that is something that comes up all the time with the trends as well. The organizations who were willing to downsize past investments or get rid of jettison old parts of the business that are no longer performing. Before it's too late, really looking at the curve and about where they're going to be going to go. But in order to do that, there's two key variables here. And these are the two key trends you talk about. One is the industry we mentioned earlier on, and the other is the exposure to growth geographies. I'd love you to expand on these. So we've done three of the 10. These are the next two. So uh, basically, trends can be your friend or trends can be in your face, headwinds or tailwinds. And... In a way, we looked at just now on the slide with industries and the industry profitability was very different. The industry can move you around too. If your entire industry is going down or up, you know, energy prices up, oil and gas is up uh, and so on, you will see a move on that. Yeah, so if you go back to that slide, industries have moved from the far left to the far right. So then you have an industry trend yeah, because the bar of the industry moves, you move. Similarly, you could do this with geography if the geography lifts you. So this, the industries can move, again, the probability by about 20% and geography another 10. So your trends could change the odds of you going from the middle to the top, again, from eight to something like 30, which is massive. So now you have a bad or a good starting point at zero to 50 and you have a trend to zero to 30. Uh, okay, so you could be at 80% just knowing the trends 
and your starting point, not even knowing what you're doing yourself. Uh, or you could be at the bottom end of that. And so understanding that, by the way, that's why I think companies should discuss trends, not for the niceness to know the trends, but to know how big the headwind is. Your headwind 300 million on the curve was your headwind 500 million to the curve, or you have a 500 million tailwind. Uh, so trends could be your friend or your foe. And you talk about the, the trend with trends, unfortunately, which is many, many board members and CEOs and executives will bring in the futurist, talk about future trends and where things are moving. But then it's what they do with it next, which is absolutely core. And many, many don't yeah. do anything. Writing on the wall, acting on the writing on the wall. Absolutely. Exactly. As you say in the book, you have to act on the writing on the wall. But to do this, yep. you need to be a great dancer and you need to have five dance moves. Five moves. <laughs> yep. And the five moves are, I'd love you to take us through programmatic M&A, dynamic allocation of resources, resource allocation, strong capital expenditure, strength of productivity program, and improvements in differentiation. These will be, these will complete the 10 the 10 moves and make it much, much easier for you to triangulate success. M&A is often said as uh, it's not valuable to the buyer. The old statistics says 70% of M&A is not valuable to the buyer. The reality is that's done on large deals. What the model says is if you have a regular M&A program, so you keep your skill, you do one deal a year, no deal is bigger than 30%, but on average, you buy 6% of your revenue or 6% of your market cap every year, you're changing the odds of your success. Similarly, on resource allocation, I mentioned, you know, the average resource reallocation is 2%, 6% is the hurdle again. So now you combine M&A and resource allocation, you could be doing 6% M&A and 6% resource allocation. And after five years, you have a really new company. Whereas if you do it at the average rate or below average rate, you don't get there. So, so, and the organic resource allocation is you take your capex or you take your R&D or you take your marketing money and you move it between markets, products, and customer segments. On capex um, expansion, that's really only for capex intensive industries with, with high growth. The story is basically if you don't build the factory before the demand is there, you're going to be behind the demand when the demand is there. So, you know, you can see this arms race in uh, car batteries now, and you could see it in semiconductors in the past and so on. But if you have this high X or in the logistics of e-commerce, you actually have to build. Uh, and, you know, of course, that's there you can go wrong. That's the only asymmetric move. You could build something that never is used. Okay, then that doesn't work. But if you don't build it in a high wave, then the one who built catches the wave. So then you take productivity and differentiation. Uh, productivity being all kinds of measures of efficiency and differentiation, basically your pricing capability versus your inputs. Uh, that one is not measured in the absolute, which happens a lot in benchmarking in the strategy room, where you say, oh, I'm the best already. That's not the test. It's you have to be among the best 30% improvers. That means that if you're the best and somebody else catches up, your differentiation goes away and then your margin goes away. So even the weak ones catching up with you is a threat to your competitiveness. And so therefore, productivity and differentiation are things that you need to improve at the top 30%. And almost no benchmark 
in the inside room shows the improvement rate of competition. And it's the improvement rate that you should benchmark, not the absolute level. It's it just it's just like sports, man. You always have to keep ahead of your competitors. They're always going to catch up yep. on you eventually. And you know, it's one of the things you talk discipline. about is one one of the things you talk about in the book is we make strategies not thinking that well, your competitor is doing a strategy as well, and they could be better than yours as well. Yeah, I thought to bring it all together, I have a slide, Sven, of PCC and how they mapped all the ten variables, and you show a scorecard. Yep. And I thought this would be so yep. useful for audience. So I'm going to pop this up on the screen here and then people can see well this is what a dashboard looks like we we mentioned that this company did jump from the middle to the top they were not that particularly large so on that they don't get the additional score they don't hit the threshold of the light uh, shading here on that capacity they were kind of average and on r&d this was not an r&d intense company so they got no advantaged endowment uh, they had an advantaged industry trend, so that lifted their probability by the 20 points that go with that that we just explained. Geography was not that favorable. Uh, they did a high-score M&A program. They were past the threshold for the resource allocation. They were the average of the CapEx program a bit to the right, and they did the productivity in the top 30% improvers and the differentiation in the top 10 improvers. As a result, when we recalculate the odds for this company with this dashboard, we find they had a 76% chance to go from the middle to the top versus the average of eight. And as I said, your chances to go down, go down too, because the average odds to go down, I think were 14% and they moved to one. So you symmetrically shift up. Uh, and so that's what I meant with the dashboard. Even this company doesn't have all the high scores. It's not at 100%, but 76% is a lot. And you can almost, from a profitability perspective, multiply the 76 between the delta of your starting point and your end point, and that's your expected money value. The last thing I wanted to cover was you go through, for example, you map industry change to an S-curve, the different stages of the S-curve. But one of the most difficult parts is the end you say so at the start of the s-curve you know people see it coming you have those change makers kind of going this is the future very p few people act but it's that sense of urgency that's missing so many so so much in the in the boardroom where this with the strategy that causes that problem and then people cling to the past to the ego to the their their compensation they have etc but one question I often get asked, and it's a difficult one to answer, is how do you create that sense of urgency? Okay, I've given this deck, I've shown your deck, I've shown all the examples, all the case studies. The executives have read all the books, yet they still won't move. You know, there's the inertia is truly big, as you uh, allude to, which I, you know, it's just, you know, in a way, it's what it is. But uh, it has so many reasons because you're busy with the 99% of the business or the 90% of the business that is the past. And by the way, that's a lot of hard work. The factory needs to produce, the sales needs to be done, the channel needs to be built. It's all good. And that 10% is actually loss making and, you know, or whatever it might be. And, you know, the people that are there, you don't know them very well and, you know, they're just small and so on. Um, I think the only pivot that you can make as senior management is to say, I will spend my time proportional to the destiny of the company. 
and I will drag you along. So if you truly believe that the 10% of a company is going to be the future of the company versus the 90, you're going to spend 90% of your time on the 10%. You might even say I have a COO for my 90%, but I bring my best talents. My Of course, you want to make sure that you still have the cash flow that can fund that new engine. But if you don't walk the talk yourself and you just tell the 10% unit, well, why are you not going faster? That Well, that just might be because the whole system is geared towards the rest. So you have to start at the top to contort that. Uh, and from that, people will reach some urgency. Uh, you know, if the senior management is spending, literally, you, know, you could imagine it, the most extreme I've seen is you literally have a management team on the 10. That's the most senior team. And you have a fairly junior team running the 90. Okay, that people will get. I have a quote here to share, to reinforce one of the core messages I took from the book, because the book is full of trends, full of case studies, etc. Don't forget, there's a, a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the Innovation Show Substack to be in the hat to win a copy. But I love this line, Sven. You say, seeing the writing on the wall is easy, but acting on it can be tough. To friend the trend, you must overcome myopia, pain avoidance, and inertia. No easy task in that. Sven, for people who want to find you and your work with McKinsey, where is the best place to find you? You can find me at svensmith at mckinsey.com on email. Uh, that sounds old, but that's a very good way for me to respond. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and uh, you will find me there. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Creator of the McKinsey Three Horizons, author of The Granularity of Growth and this baby strategy beyond the hockey stick, Sven Smith. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Eden. And don't forget, there's a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the Innovation Show Substack and you will be in the hat to win a copy of this great book. See you next week.